0: Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. The episode today is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Alex Wang, Professor of Law at UCLA and co-director of the Emmett Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. Alex is an expert on the law and politics of Chinese environmental governance, and um, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Hi, Alex. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, so prior to joining UCLA, you worked in China for um, a number of years for the environmental group NRDC. Um, in fact, you even helped to start up and establish the Beijing office in 2006. Um, and a lot has changed since 2006 um, in the world, yeah. um, in ourselves. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. certainly the relationship between China and the U.S. are very different. Um, the landscape of climate policy is very different. Um, you know, a lot has changed politically, economically, and technologically. So maybe to just get us started, we could kind of go back in time a little bit. And um, you know, what what drew you to China at that time? And and what was the vibe on environmental issues, um, kind of both in within the Chinese environmental um, NGO community, such as it was at the time, you know, vis a vis the U.S. and China, um, and yeah, just thinking back to that time, what what was the sense that you had of 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 the world? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so
1: uh, thanks again for having me here, and uh, really honored to be. Uh, part of uh, part of this podcast. So, you know, the way I, I think about China, I, I I went to China and was working for NRDC from uh, 2005 to 2011. But my um, kind of work engagement with China goes back 30 years from right when I got out of college in the early 90s. You know, I, I first... Had uh, spent a year in China teaching English at a university in uh, Wuhan in 1994, which mm-hmm. you know now now is very well known because of COVID, but back right. then was not known to really anybody um and so the the changes in China from that time over that three decades span really informed the way I think about China because mm-hmm. the the transformation is really you know generational or, you know we're not going to see such a rapid transformation in a in a place I think for for a long, long time. and so you know when I first started engaging with China it was it had really just opened. Uh, to the world, uh, you know, a little more than a decade before after the Cultural Revolution, Uh, extraordinarily poor still. And uh, China was at the beginning of kind of starting to uh, focus on the economy as its way to modernize and to re-engage with the, the world. Uh, f- from uh, uh-huh. my understanding, you know, Walmart, for example, started sourcing out of China in the early '90s, kind of post Tiananmen Square. So, so mm-hmm. flash forward, you know, a, a little more than a decade when I started working with with NRDC, that was a really interesting time in that, uh, you know, first of all, the the kind of leadership was the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao era, the the, the predecessors mm-hmm. to Xi Jinping, and. China had not that long ago just joined the WTO so if you look at all the economic statistics you know that really you know hypercharged China's economic growth and uh, contributed to all of the environmental problems that are associated with that you know due to uh, the rapid growth of energy use the rapid uh, build out of coal fired Power plants and, and just you know all the pollution associated with manufacturing and heavy industry, and the and those sorts of things. And so when when I first started working on environmental issues, I was just you know at that point just four or five years out of law school, and the opportunity I had, uh, which I don't think I fully understand understood at the time where it was coming from. But what what I now realize is. It was a period in China where uh, they'd made a lot of commitments as part of their entry into the WTO. Uh, and, you mm. know, you, some of you may remember that in the nineties, uh, post in the decade post Tiananmen, there was a lot of back and forth uh, and kind of political battles and debates in the U.S. about. Whether to uh, support China entering the WTO, uh, how, to what extent to tie that to human rights commitments and these sorts of things, and and when China joined the WTO in 2001, there were a lot of commitments that China made. Uh, uh, you know, in our world of of law, a lot of them are associated with the types of things you think about that are just. Uh, accepted parts of administrative law, you know, kind of transparency, the right to participate, uh, the right to have judicial recourse for conflicts, these sorts of things. And so when I first uh, joined NRDC, it was we had gotten a grant to help Chinese actors Figure out how to implement these commitments. Mm. So they'd had some laws, you know. There was an administrative licensing law, which was all about transparency and the, you know, kind of notice and comment types of things. And so we were running a lot of programs that were really just about the bread and butter things that environmental groups and citizens do in the United States. Just mm. learning about some hearing that's coming up, going and and, and finding out what's going on, submitting comments. Um, And uh, then, you know, if there's conflicts down the road, uh, bringing public interest uh, lawsuits. So so I I had a chance to work with some of uh, just really impressive people in China, you know, uh, law professors and lawyers who were bringing the first public interest uh, lawsuits, uh, environmentalists who were really pushing hard on transparency and and government officials, frankly. You know, lots Mm -hmm. of people in the government were interested in these things. Uh, for a variety of reasons, you know, for for the sort of uh, kind of, I, I guess, participatory values reasons, but also for practical reasons of governance and trying to figure out what was going on in the hinterlands and, and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And so I, I had a really interesting run during that time, and it was a very open time in terms of a lot of interest in the way Americans uh, did things Westerners did things on envir- environmental regulation, and, and quite frankly, very, you know, extraordinarily serious environmental degradation. Right, that you know that was in the press quite a lot, and really shaped the way people uh, thought about China. And um, you know, so flash forward a few years when I entered academia um, in uh, 2011 you know, a lot of what I was thinking about was trying to unpack and unwind what I had experienced uh, during a real whirlwind of a few years, you know, which now in retrospect wasn't that many years, but really felt like an an eternity, you know, just six years on the ground, but, you know, saw enough to pack, you know, several decades of life experience, I think. And, and, um, you know, just really trying to understand uh, what I, what I saw and, um, and understand the transformations. And and you know I, what I saw. You know, part of what I saw, which might be interesting to our listeners, is you know, I, I in a sense saw the flip side of what was going on in, in America. Right? Like mm-hmm. if you if you contri- if you think of part of the uh, you know the rise of Trump and and the polarization as related to the sh- you know the decline of manufacturing in the United States, which. You know, it has to do with automation and these things, but in part is is due to the shift of business to, to China. I sort of saw the boom on the China mm-hmm. side. You know, I spent a lot of time visiting, um, you know, power plants and uh, you know textile plants and all sorts of factories, shirt shirt, uh, you know, shirt manufacturing, you know, shirt te- plants, and mm-hmm. uh, just to see w- what was going on. And you saw the boom and the energy on the on that's that side. Um, and uh, you know, so so my academic work has been all about kind of thinking about the the way China runs things, how it's different than what I had expected, and how what I was advocating for during that time, mm-hmm. and also thinking more broadly about how that makes us think about uh, the way China runs things. You know, I, I was listening to your uh, very good podcast with Jed Purdy on kind of the state of democracy. And there's a lot of connections with what you guys were talking about that podcast. You know, you guys were mm. talking about the you know, these I this this sense in the nineties of the end of history and yeah. the fact that we'd kind of arrived at the the final end state. And China is one of the big reasons why that is is destabilized, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, and we and we can talk more about that. But you know, certainly the the party, the the Communist Party in China, is trying to really make the case that its way of doing things, uh, authoritarian, top down, however you want to describe it, uh, is, uh, you know, as, at least as legitimate as as democracy, and that's that's really part of the kind of global. Um, political debates. So, so happy to take this conversation in any direction. There's lots of uh, interesting things to talk about here.
0: Yeah, there sure, there sure, there sure are. Um, oh, just coming, kind of maybe sticking with this, this, this last point that, that you raised, um, which is super interesting, and and again, maybe dialing or, you know, casting yourself back to the perspective that you had when, you know, during this period of time, um, you know, formative period of time when you were there, formative for you and, for, and formative for the whole world, really. For sure, yeah. Is, um, you know, so yeah, there's this kind of, there was this notion that some folks had this end of history stuff that, you know, after China's entry into the WTO and the big economic boom and the, the growth of a kind of a, at least somewhat, Capitalist or market-based economy, or the relaxation of state control over the economy at the very least—that um, yeah. that was going to lead this kind of classic thing. That that was going to lead to the growth of liberal democracy through some as yet to be fully specified process. But that was like right. a natural thing that would unfold. Did did you buy buy into that? Was that something that you thought seemed realistic at the time? And then you know, now that we look back, maybe maybe wasn't, or was it something that you were always kind of skeptical of? Or and what yeah. about folks in China at the time? Did did was on the ground, was that a feeling that that was realistic, or was that a, a thing amongst folks in the U.S. And, and Europe?
1: Yeah, so so that's a that's a really complicated question. I think it totally depends on uh, where you stood at the time. You know, so mm-hmm. a, for me, as really, I, I thought of myself as a public interest advocate, so it was a mm-hmm. narrower brief, right? You know, I was working mm-hmm. for an environmental group. We had pretty specific. Environmental aims that obviously were mixed in with sort of uh, democratic kinds of approaches to things, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the transparency and the public participation all are are uh, can be grouped under a category mm-hmm. of, of democratic. Um, But, you know, we weren't really thinking about kind of regime change or democratization or those types of things. But, you know, certainly if you'd run into people from, uh, you know, like a USAID or Mm -hmm. more government oriented people, you know, they probably did have those things in, in mind. And that was a pretty widespread uh, notion, you know, not not in the sense that people were sure it was going to happen, but mm-hmm. the the basic premise was, of course, that you know, once you get richer, once you sort of see uh, the the opportunities brought by some marketization and openness, that citizens would sort of demand greater political liberalization, mm-hmm. right? And we now understand a lot more about the way China. Has run things, and you know, there's been a, a lot more marketization. But of course, uh, while the party has maintained a pretty tight uh, political control, and and that of course doesn't mean that um, people's lives, you know, th- that it's sort of a totalitarian state, mm-hmm. right? This we can talk more about also. But you know, I think what if you've spent time in China and or if you know, you grew up in China, you know what? what you experience and especially certain certainly my students they've experienced decades during their entire life of basically rapid improvements on an annual mm-hmm. basis in their economic well-being and their and the choices that that offers right so i've been mm-hmm. like uh, you know, I have I have Amartya Sen's development as freedom uh, here in my office, and I've been looking about that, be- looking at that because you know, clearly there there are certain civil freedoms you do not have and political freedoms you you don't have in in China, but the economic growth allowed, you know. V- very basic transformations in the ability of people to control their own, own lives in terms mm-hmm. of you know just uh, you know choosing what you wanted to do for for a living uh, going on vacation traveling abroad you know sending kids to to, to school in the United States or in in, in Europe uh, and or, or you know uh, you know in all of the types of things that come with uh, economic development and so so that part is uh is such a important part of the chinese story that i think maybe people outside don't really understand because you know in the united states sometimes it's this feeling of like you know given the kind of human rights stories and things like that that we see there's a sense that you know how could chinese people really like living in that mm-hmm. system right and i think you have to understand that you know the 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 political things are are things that i i think need to be changed and and you know i i think that you know particularly the human rights of violations but you know if you look at the numbers of people that affects it's a it's a smaller percentage of people and then you have the mass majority of people often experiencing the economic growth and these sorts of things
0: yeah that's really interesting because in a way you know i don't know if it's a it's a cultural bias or what exactly um but you know this emphasis that you know it's very important as a matter of um you know, just just it's important to people in some ways that they be able to exercise the, the vote or that the you know the press works in certain ways or whatever. But in a way, I don't know, and maybe this is to your point. Is there's something that's kind of elite oriented about that? It's like amongst elites. You know, in the US, let's say, and in Europe, those kinds of issues are very important, right? That if yeah. journalists are being cracked down on, that's a big deal, in part because if you're an elite, you might know some journalists, right? right. Or you, you know, it's important to you that your news sources are reliable and credible. Like, there's a, and that's that's a luxury in some ways. Like that's after you're fed and your kids are fed and your education's taken care of and you've got a decent, you know, your transportation, you can get around and you know these other things. And so I wonder if that, you know, part of you know just this is maybe just reiterating what you were saying, but yeah. you know, freedom was increasing along all these dimensions, and it just turns out that you know people. They were getting what was most important to them in some sense. and And so there wasn't this big clamoring for political liberties in or that we would associate with a liberal democracy anyway, um in part because you know they were th- they were becoming more autonomous over time and had greater scope of their lives in the ways that kind of mattered most to them.
1: Right. And, and you know, so certainly they don't have the right to select their leaders in, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the way, you know, the, the, way, the thing we associate mainly with democracy. Right. But so, so there's a number of ways in which I think you, you can account for the resilience of the party and a sense of growing freedom. Some of it is about what I was referring to earlier, which is just the economic freedom to control your own life th- apart from the state. But there's also interesting developments if you want to get more legal about it. You know, this was the the area I focused on um, you know, both at NREC and, and in my academic work, which which is the, the ways the state was responsive or not to citizen demands, right? So some of it was actually in the form of administrative law types of reforms. So hearings, you know, transparency. And so, there. there for example, in the environmental space, that was one of the major main issues I, I focused on during my NRDC period. and. There's been massive expansions in the amount of pollution data disclosed and, mm-hmm. and transparency in a, in a variety of ways, but in in th- ways that are less familiar to Americans, there were also all sorts of other ways in which the bureaucracy uh, had was able to gather information from society and to choose to d- to respond. Or, or not, right? And so mm-hmm. in, in some sense, you just saw it with the COVID protests, yeah. right? Yep. So so if you think of protests, often the, the media discussion turns to will the regime be overthrown or not, right? right. 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 Which is a massive, you know, zero to 100 kind of discussion. <laughs> right. But right. short of the overthrow, what's going on with protests, right? right. What, what we saw, you know, during my time, and a lot of people have written about this, is you know, smaller scale protests as just a regular sort of a regularized form of engagement between society and and the state and the way that the center also can monitor local governments. Right. Like mm-hmm, Beijing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if they see an area that there's a lot of protests, that's a sure sign that there's something going on in which the local officials are not managing things hmm. right. Mm-hmm. You know, that. And so, you know, local officials learn different techniques to to manage and not get the signal sent up to Beijing that they're not handling their, their jurisdiction, right? Sometimes it's crackdown, right? So you've right. heard all sorts of crazy stories. You know, sometimes the local officials send kind of thugs to Beijing to mm. hang around the letter, you know, the complaints office and to listen for people with the local <laughs> dialect so they can <laughs> snatch them up and put them in black jails and ship them back Jeez. home, right? So All so right. they prevent the, the data from reaching Beijing. All right. so, but sometimes it does lead to just concessions, right? Yep. And uh, there's a great documentary called The Chinese Mayor, which I think is available mm. on uh, Amazon Prime, which mm. is about a, a kind of Northern mayor Um, And the way he manages, you know, it was a period where he was massively tearing down large parts of the city, which naturally led to lots of conflicts, Mm -hmm. people not wanting to be forcibly removed and showing how he dealt with it. So some of Mm -hmm. it was harsh and crackdowns. A lot of it was informal kind of engagement with people. and. I would say, you know, you describe it as the, the the politician's sense of who did he have to give concessions to? Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. who were, you know, squeaky enough wheels would get some sort of concessions. Others might not get concessions, and there's this very kind of fluid, informal aspect, which is, you know, there's probably p- core parallels you could think of in our political system, but this is mm-hmm. this looks quite different, right? The idea that a mayor would have. In the United States, you know, the LA mayor would have a hundred people swarm him after as he leaves his office in the morning, and then he can sort of divvy up apartments to a few of them that <laughs> just on his own personal whims would right, right. would not play well in the United States, right? But this Great. was kind of part of the formula, and uh, it's a, it's a form of accountability. It's not really fair, you know, it's not right. procedurally fair and the, those types of things. But it was one way that they managed things, and it's when you get under that hood to see that there was this accountability uh, in conjunction with kind of hard control, right? So you're seeing it with the COVID protests now, like some of the news stories coming out was, you know, you saw the concession of rollback of COVID Mm -hmm. uh, crackdowns. But then now there are the news stories of, you know, those people who were visible leaders too, you know, too visible on, uh, the, you know, the Chinese version of Twitter or whatever are now facing some repercussions, you know, they're getting sought out by authorities. And, you know, so it's that push and pull to kind of, where the party is trying to keep things within a band, I suppose, would be Mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a, a, you know, somewhat neutral way of, of putting it. Um, Uh, yeah, and so so I think that part of it is really fascinating. And so you think of like protest statistics, um, you know, letters and visits is kind of the a uh, kind of quasi you know uh, legal kind of mm-hmm. uh, complaints process, or even like litigation numbers. You know, how much are you seeing certain types of lawsuits are, are all being sort of fed into the system and the bureau and you know in, in the Chinese system you might think of courts as more as part of the bureaucracy rather than as a kind of right. separate from the government, you know. The the judges are also being evaluated in, you know, how often are they being uh, overturned? You know, how often does their decision lead to, uh, you know, unrest or complaints mm. or th- these types of things? And so it leads to judges uh, being in complicated situations where they they rely on the law, among other things, to make their decisions. Right? There are also political. Mm-hmm. Targets and things like that, that and and kind of political, just kind of the the messaging that they're hearing from on high that informs the way they have to grapple with uh, with different types of um, disputes that that arise.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting. I think it's important, you know, reality on the ground, reality that a lot of folks miss um, in the U.S. when they when they observe. You know, just kind of casually thinking about China or observe China, think about China, is this right? Really complex. What I think would be fair to call political system, you know, dynamic, right? There's a lot of politics that happen. It just isn't electoral politics in the way that, which isn't to say that it's the best, or just to note that it is a reality, right? And you know, just with the COVID protests, very interesting. As you mentioned that, just occurred to me. You know, I've never seen in the United States a situation where large scale protests, even big ones that we've had in recent years, including things like, you know, the BLM movement or BLM and um, uh, Me Too and the like, led to such an immediate and concrete policy change as what happened. You know, like it just doesn't happen here. Like it's way too, it's it's just too, I don't know what, I don't know why exactly. I think we could probably talk about that, but like it just, that's just not how our system works, which is very interesting because in a sense, it's the the chinese government was showing itself to be actually quite um responsive to at least some particular kind of demands made in some particular kind of ways right
1: but you know it also partly reflects how extreme the chinese policy had been right and so you know it it had gotten to a point where you know people were really upset you know i i Mm -hmm. this year for example our um LLM students who came in from China, Mm -hmm. you know, during COVID, we for, I guess, two years, we didn't really have many students from China, but they came back this year, and quite a few of them are from Shanghai. And so they were essentially imprisoned for the early part of 2022, right? It was, there was a lot of news about, um, you know, people being locked up, not allowed to to exit, yeah. and then they had to rely on uh, food, you know, rationed food and rationed deliveries of food, and often which often were pretty sparse. And so, mm. so they had a pretty negative view, and you know, the sort of complaints about governance were much higher than I'd ever mm. seen from Chinese students, who are normally pretty judicious, I guess, about mm. being vocal about criticisms, mm. uh, uh, especially you know, to people that they've only just just met, and sure. so people were pretty. Yeah, you know, so I didn't. I didn't by any means predict the uh, the protests, but when they came, it was consistent with hmm. a turn in attitude I'd heard just a few months earlier from my students who had hmm. just kind of emerged from from Shanghai. Um, and so, yeah. But your observations interesting, and you know, it, you know, this is the the interesting debate about you know the Chinese authoritarian system, right? Like often when we talk about it in the West, to the extent that it's spoken of in a positive way, it's often as a foil to the difficulty of getting things done in in the, right. in our system, right? So, you know, particularly often you hear it, you know, we, I used to receive a lot of visitors when I was in Beijing and often it's in, in particular in response to how quickly China was building infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm, and so right. it would often be like, oh, I wish we could do that. You know, I wish we, we could, could uh, get things done like they can uh, in in China, and you know that's both an overstatement of what is possible in China. But China, you know, when when there's uniform, when there, there's not a lot of dispute about the direction, or it's mm-hmm. a very important issue, it, th- things can move pr- particularly quickly. Lots of other issues, there it's much more fragmented, and so there's there's. Also, kind of stagnation and and you know things get uh, uh, blocked up in a, in a in a in a way that would be familiar to us in our our system, but but of course I mean as as we as you guys discussed on the uh, the, uh, the podcast with Jed you know the, a lot of this is by design right in in the, in mm-hmm. the U.S. system to 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 not allow kind of rapid change and so rapid change is certainly possible in China for better or for worse right you know it can it can change in pretty dark directions too if you think of like cultural revolution times and Mm -hmm. and the the great leap forward and the famine during that in the 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 early decades of the the people's republic of china
0: yeah and and i this kind of this notion of this envy of of the you know the rapidity with which china can act yeah that always struck me as as it, it, there's some, maybe there's some element of truth that seems to always struck me as misunderstanding China to a certain extent, but also, you know, like we, we've had that at different times in US history And, you know, Robert Moses is a very interesting figure in in the history of New York, right? Like, yeah, stuff got built, but like a lot of it we now regret and we certainly regret like how it was done and, you know, like leveling, you know, African-American neighborhoods and without any process. And then all this, you know, uh, you know the, this car infrastructure that he locked in place. So yeah, it, it just it always just strikes me as like so. Ezra Klein has been on a hobby horse about this. I, I was uh, <laughs> I just
1: listened to the <laughs> Yan Ang one, which was very good, and and talks hits on some of the things we're talking about. Right. Now yep. you know the, the, it's interesting that you bring up the Robert Moses piece because I'm really interested in like the you know the Robert Caro exploration of American power, mm-hmm. and I've been playing with this idea of uh, you know ren you know, Yan renang actually uses this this idea that of china as a you know as a mirror image of the united states mm-hmm. i've been thinking about that idea but in a different sense um, and, you know, in my China classes, I often show um, the uh, the famous um, you can't handle the truth scene from A Few uh-huh. Good Men. Right? So <laughs> okay. It turns out most of my – this is what makes me feel old because most of my students have not they seen that movie. probably right? don't, don't know early about the early it. 90s, yeah. I guess. But, you know, for me, it's like such a seminal legal totally, movie. Right? Right. And it, right. and now when you look at it in retrospect, it's such a full-throated uh, you know, sub- movie about the American way, right? The right. American rule of law. And, uh-huh. you know, that scene in particular, it's, you know, the law coming in, clamping down on this powerful military figure, yep. right? And his speech is all about, you know, you ungrateful jerk. You don't appreciate right. what I do for your security. And, you know, you can't tolerate the way I get things done. Uh-huh. And to me, it, it, I now that I've been studying China, that scene really plays differently to me in the sense uh-huh. that, you know, like in the Moses story, which is really all about how we can look back and really say, like, kind of criticize Moses. Mm -hmm. But in some sense, I think if Americans were to be more honest about ourselves, right? Like you have to think about, you know, the the few good men scene and the Robert Moses story as kind of really the story of, of, you know, the uneven development of America, right? right? That we appreciate the good things that it's brought. But oftentimes it was done in a way, you know, maybe you know, at the time, certainly not not even tacitly, but explicit you know sort of accepted as a as a way of doing things. But you know, in some ways, a kind of a tacit like it the system will criticize that, but it's always been a part of the way things get mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. China's story is in in a sense, the reverse of that in that they celebrate. In a sense that, you know, their party line is the Jack Nicholson speech. Right, it's the Jack Nicholson (laughs) line. And then then what is the hidden part is actually the Tom Cruise part in the sense that they've introduced a lot of kind of stuff on the edges. You, You know, it's sort of like the dominant story is the Jack Nicholson story and it's tempered by the Tom Cruise stuff. Uh, you know, in my view, kind of insufficiently. Right. Whereas in some ways the American story is really, you know, the the story we tell about herself is the Tom Cruise story. But the dark secret is the Jack Nicholson stuff, which, you know, there's lots of different ways you can frame that. But, you know, if you were more of a critic critic from the critical side, you'd say, you know, that's you probably say, you know, that's just the way, the American way, you know, and we we right. don't like to talk about that.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting That's super interesting. And, you know, I think that if I'm just kind of just see, cause that's, I feel like there's a cool insight there. And of course I like talking about movies from the 1990s. So I'm trying to get more, <laughs> squeeze more out of this, but, uh, um, but in a way there's like something about the Tom Cruise line, the rule of law, you know, holding power to account. We do things by the book thing. I, I wonder like if a like a more, like a critical theorist would say, it's actually like that story in a way allows for the raw exercise of power, right? Mm, That you need the Tom Cruise in order for the Jack Nicholson's of the world to be able to do their thing, and it's completely dependent on it, and it tacitly allows it, except for occasionally making a big deal out of, you know, um, holding someone to account. And so so that's interesting. And I wonder- that's a good way to put it, yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if there's like, again, trying to keep this with the inverse story with China, like, does the does the fact that they make a big deal out of kind of you know by any means necessary doing the things that you know we want collectively to do you know achieve prosperity or social you know cohesion or whatever somehow empower the small moves of rule of law and and regularization and, and and fairness, procedural fairness or whatever that yeah. um, that kind of happened in the shadows in some sense.
1: Yeah. So I mean, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I, th- I think you could answer that a couple of different ways. I mean, you know, one one development that doesn't fully map onto my kind of Jack Nicholson um, ana- you know, analogy is that there's a way in which the party is trying to essentially redefine language to. Mm-hmm. In ways that we may or may not agree with, so so what the most one of the most obvious ways is that there uh, a lot of the party rhetoric now just says we are a democracy. We're just a different <laughs> type of democracy. <laughs> right. And what they really mean by that is that the party f- thinks about the what the people want, mm-hmm. right so there all there's always sorts of ways you know we could get into a long debate about how to critique that, right? But it's an interesting question, right? because certainly, in some respects, Party policy has dovetailed with what people want mm-hmm. uh, in some respects, but certainly lots of other things that people want are it's completely excluded from that. And but then, how do you compare that to a democracy in of, in, in which, of course, you don't always get everything that you want? And right. what is how do you define what the people want anyway? You know, given the diversity and, and and such. So right. there's one a, a way in which. Um, Words are just being redefined. The other thing I think that uh, you're getting at is, you know, does it allow political space for people who are promoting more liberal kinds of policies? And, um, you know, there's been uh, some work in political science about uh, a term um, Kevin O'Brien at uh, Berkeley coined, which is rightful resistance, Hmm. uh, which is this idea that, you know, uh, people could take advantage of commitments at the top to... You know the the risk for the the center of not uh, listening to the demands is that the uh, you know for these things like of, for rule of law or or, the, or transparency is that the leaders look like hypocrites because they've been saying that they want these things, mm-hmm. and so they have to give some concessions uh, because there's that political pressure not to just look like complete like you're saying one thing and and just completely doing the other, and so so there's that provides this kind of. Tenuous political space for people to push for for things, and there are obviously limits to it because if you push too hard, then it becomes easier for the state to crack down on you. Uh, but if you can kind of keep it within uh, bands, uh, there there is some space. But you know, this kind of political game is constantly shifting. So that I, I would say that game was much more an active one during my period of time mm-hmm. in China. It's so a mm-hmm. pre Xi. So right. since she and I haven't spent as nearly as much time on the ground since in the last decade, but my from everything I've heard and discussions and is that that space has just become much tighter and much uh, narrower uh, right, because of the direction of centralization and political tightening and these sorts of things. And so all the signals and all the, the actions have have made it harder to um, to play that game. And so the game will just continue to, to to change, and we'll have to see where where it heads. I think.
0: So you know, so that's a huge transition, right? Since since you were in China to um, to today is is Xi's rise and um, yeah. consolidation of power. That's massive, and yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious about the connection of that to you know, there's there's maybe three things happening. There's a political change, there's ec- economic change. Um, and then there's environmental change, all kind of all yeah. happening simultaneously. So as you mentioned, like when you were certainly there in the in the in the 90s and early aughts, or in the aughts, that um, you know there was all of this concern that spilled out globally, but was I'm sure a very big deal in China about air quality and and pollution and and just general pollution and so on is just starting to get figured out and addressed. Yeah. And um, and so I'm curious about the interaction of these things. Like, you know, there's been progress on environmental um, issues in China in terms of like outcomes. I assume I should be, you know, curious to hear yeah. your thoughts about that. Yeah. And then how does that interact with kind of economic changes and and political changes that have happened in the in the past couple of decades? Yeah, yeah.
1: So I think um, so. That's a great question. And and, and I think, uh, you know, so so for people who aren't tracking this, I've, the the environmental story in terms of like the political priority of environmental regulation or environmental protection, there's been a really big change uh, in the last say 15 to 20 years. Um, And so I, I think that change started when I was on the ground uh, in in what the the 2006 to 2010 period was China's 11th five year plan. You know, China mm-hmm. uses these kind of Leninist five year plans, and so that was a period where you started to see a shift towards greater prioritization of uh, environment, and then that has continued over the last decade, and and uh, to the ex- The extent that now kind of this idea of what the the Chinese call uh, Mm -hmm. eco-civilization, which you could just conceive of as a sort of concept of environmental protection, has been put in the constitution and it's become a big political priority with a lot of bureaucratic targets attached to it and, and all sorts of policies associated with it. And, and, you know, the way that I understand that transition is, you know, it's partly environmental, but it's also political and economic. So all three of those areas that you mentioned are all wrapped up in the environmental story. And and this is a lot of my academic work is, is kind of thinking about the intersections there. And so... You know, if, you, if it's the the part that's most consistent with the the story we tell about environmental regulation, and uh, uh, we just had Richard Lazarus uh, at UCLA um, mm-hmm. a couple of days ago talking about his his uh, second edition of Making of Environmental Law. So I got to hear a, a refresher of our American environmental history. <laughs> and, you know, just thinking about the kind of bottom-up story, right, that we're very familiar with, you know, there was an aspect of that in the Chinese system in the terms of Uh, A lot of people were really unhappy with the air pollution, the water pollution, the soil pollution, and it was leading to all sorts of, you know, hundreds if not thousands of protests a year uh, all over the country and you know from from the position of beijing or or the the subnational governments you know this was a massive governance problem you know stability problem social stability problem which is is very prized as a political value within the chinese system and so how did they needed to get a handle on that right and so part of that was drove some of the the action. And, you know, that relates to how it's a political story, right? It's about, like, maintaining enough satisfaction so that you don't lose legitimacy, you don't have an unmanageable uh, level of, of protest. And then it also dovetailed with the economic story, which was that China, uh, the the leaders have been very clear that they want to transform the economy into something more more like the developed world economies, right? Which is mm. More services and less heavy industry and and agriculture, right? Like you want to move, upgrade the economy in in a right. sense, and so so the environmental stuff was really could be wrapped together with that piece, right? So if you think of just more economic kind of policies, like trying to uh, limit overcapacity in steel and cement, or um, you know trying to develop uh you know tech industries or tourism industries mm-hmm. uh those types of things are all could be could be in part pushed through environmental laws right so mm-hmm. if you ban some of the worst uh you know if, if you disfavor heavy industry for example mm-hmm. which they've done in the wealthier provinces in particular that can you know it can drive out some of that business and kind of lay the groundwork for that it it, it Kind of sits hand in hand with subsidies for uh, AI or tech mm-hmm. or advanced manufacturing and those sorts of things. And so, mm. so that has not, you know, that's been a difficult thing to push, and and the transformation has been halting in many ways. But the overall trend is towards more, uh, you know, more services, uh, less on on heavy industry, and so the environmental story is in, in part. About that, you know, improving efficiency certainly of the industry you have, mm-hmm. and also disfavoring, trying to essentially pushing kind of the transition which we had in Europe and the United States, which was was um, export of the most polluting stuff, right? Right. So, so the you know, if you look at the California environmental story, the the story you will hear is very much about regulation and the ingenuity of policy and government. But a big part of it was the shift of, you know, lots of industries we don't have anymore in in California, right? They just moved to China. And now China is kind of doing the same thing. And, And a lot of this stuff is already, you know, within China, there's an export from the coastal, eastern and southern coastal provinces inland. That was the initial stage of it, and it's still happening, sort and then there's also now export to the so-called you know belt and road countries or the, you know a lot of the south the global south uh countries it, and it's already happening, and the you know the scholars have been working on kind of quantifying that and, and that sort of thing,
0: yeah really interesting. I think, you know, it is, it's a very similar story to the U S where there's internal shifts in industry. And then ultimately, you know, stuff, you know, heavy industry, polluting industry, you know, went, went elsewhere, went to Mexico, went to China. And and I think that takes us into another kind of a big important thing that has, has shifted in that in the last, you know, 20 years and thinking about governance in China environmental governance, is just the relationship between the U S and China and how China's, you know, um, uh, global profile has just shifted, right? So there was, yeah. you know, in the, in the in the 90s, it was it was about. You know, bringing China into the kind of global world order, I guess, so to speak, yeah. the, with the WTO and the trading system and the like. Um, and now China is pursuing a, a much more—I don't know if expansionist is the right term—but you know, it's it, it, it has been quite clear that it wants to take up a leadership role on the on the global stage, and and um, and you know, working with countries throughout the global South and investment, and you know, mm-hmm. all all of this is happening. So, um, so again, just thinking about the the shifting, um, you know, geopolitics, I guess we we could say, um, in the relationship between China and the U.S., how, how much of this do you think was you know, you know, can kind of think again, casting yourself back to the, to that yeah. earlier time, you know, was this, was this kind of on the cards or, you know, what is this, it was and that it, it just, it's just, is just a natural evolution of a, of a relationship or um, is this the result of kind of specific actors making specific um decisions that kind of led us to the, the place that we're in now where there's actually, you know, we're, we're maybe not at an Adir in the relationship. Um, but it's, it's a, it seems to be a lot worse, um, a lot, a lot more conflict ridden than, than, than it was in the, you know, say in the 2000s. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't think we, you know, maybe some, some people predicted exactly where we are, but I don't. I don't. I certainly, when I think back to that time, I don't think uh, I foresaw where we are today. Right? Just mm-hmm. how much China's global kind of strength has has grown. You know, their economic power has grown by such uh, leaps and, and bounds. But you know, in retrospect, you know, it's been interesting to me. Again, why I say like my the, this kind of three decade engagement in China really mm-hmm. informs my view of China is. Yeah, you know, I really remember well in the early '90s when I was in Wuhan. You know, at the time, you know, there were some foreign companies, there were some foreign, and you know, there there were auto factories. There was a mm-hmm. Budweiser plant in Wuhan. There was mm-hmm. a, there was a, a guy who worked for Enron, if you remember uh, Enron, yeah. <laughs> who was kind of in Wuhan. Who would, we'd see at this uh, <laughs> local expat bar. And, you know, just, I just I remember the the uh, the uh, tone of foreigners towards China was really just. You know it was very much a kind of weird the kind of global leaders and this is a really backwards place you know there was a kind of disrespect right and and that's been really interesting just to see how that has gradually changed to recognizing China as a as a global player and then to now this past decade which is seeing China as a threat right and you know we're we're doing this podcast on the morning that this news of the uh, the spy balloon over yes. montana is breaking all over the place and and blinken has just canceled his uh, trip to china and so uh, so who knows where this will will take us but things are in a really uh you know difficult uh, situation but you know it's it's interesting like to connect this question to what we we're just talking about earlier about what motivated china to to kind of embrace kind of environmental policies right. Right? like you only have to look at like the clean tech area to see um to see part of the story of how this developed and to led us to where we are, right? So I think, you know, China, you know, why did China, you know, they, they passed a renewable energy law in 2006. Why did they get into this, right? You know, mm-hmm. it, it wasn't purely for environmental reasons, right? Like we, the, uh, the green groups and the green people like like us will focus on that, but there was very much, you know, politics, you know, energy security, not mm-hmm. knowing that they had to import so much from, uh, from outside and, and also there was economic opportunities in, you know, what were industries in which there were no, not dominant global incumbents, right? Mm-hmm. And so they uh-huh. thought, well, this might be a good place to to invest some money and to put industrial policy behind on wind, solar, batteries, these types of things, electric vehicles. And, you know, there's no guarantee of success on that. But, you know, it, it has led to a situation now in which China just absolutely dominates the supply chains of of these different things. If you think solar PV, batteries, wind, uh-huh. uh, electric vehicles. And, you know, p- what was motivating at the time, in part, it, it was not, you know, there, there's going to be lots of postmortems to talk about how strategic it was. But in part, it's just going where there was less resistance, right? right. You, know, wh- you know, why was China o- buying oil from, like, human rights violators. Often it was because the foreign companies didn't weren't will, able, to go, able or willing to go there, and so right. that was where they could get good oil supplies, right? So they'd go yep. to Sudan or whatever. And so this was like, they were looking for places where there wasn't just blinding competition from global multinationals, and they went to these, they invested a lot of money in these places where there just wasn't a dominant player, right? And so it's allowed them to really, in the short span of 10, 15 years, to really become globally dominant. And part of the tensions then arise out of that, right? Like think about like solar like trade conflicts related to solar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's a really interesting tension point that I think we all need to understand better. Like how do we grapple with the supply chain dominance of China in batteries mm-hmm. and clean tech, right? Like I'm all for the provisions the, the Inflation Reduction Act provisions that seek to Shift manufacturing, you know, a minimum to diversify manufacturing, but to then to try to reshore to the United States. But I have no idea whether that will work, right? Like, I mm-hmm. want to listen to the economists or business people as to whether that can actually work in the in the the long run. Um, you know, given China's cost advantage, their manufacturing uh, advantages these days, um, but that that is part of the source of tension. And and politically, of course. You know, given what, for example what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, you know, mm-hmm. Europe sees the the risks of relying on natural gas from a, a kind of geopolitical rival, right? Energy from, and so mm-hmm. that's clearly in the mix in the in the U.S. China discussions and how we resolve it. I, you know, I think everyone's thinking about it now. I don't really have a good answer uh, for that, but it makes it very interesting in terms of when you think about geopolitics and climate, right? Because mm-hmm. the in among you know, some of uh, the environmental researchers who focus on China, who I respect a lot, are doing a lot of work showing the difficulty for our achievement of our climate goals that will be put in if we shut off, if we try to shut off China supply chains, it'll just increase the cost of everything, right? At least in the near and medium term. And so, how much does that slow deployment of the technologies we need, these sorts of things, uh, you know, that's all. You know, kind of troublesome dilemmas that we're going to have to grapple with. I, I think in the short term, we're, we're going to have to continue. To, you know, If you think of cooperation with China as buying things from them, mm-hmm. we're, th- there's no way we can stop buying a lot of these key things from them. And it's going to take a little while to kind of get manufacturing up or, or diversify sourcing. Um, but uh, I think that's the direction where we're going to head. But probably in the near term, we're going to see – uh, you know, there's gonna be a lot of work for the lawyers and consulting firms on how to structure things so that they don't run afoul of laws But in fact, probably there's still Chinese involvement, right? Like you got to imagine there's gonna be a lot of that in the beltway
0: Yeah, it's I mean, it's really really interesting because it's so hard given how um, Integrated our global economy is to then try to to delink it especially on something as complex as in the energy space just one example of this that I just saw was a um, a bit of analysis on the, on the EU uh, energy markets and, you know, where they're getting their natural gas and, you know, how like Ellen, like liquefied natural gas markets are being affected by, mm. you know, delinking with Russia and so on. And mm. I just saw this little, this tidbit, which was um, Egypt is a, has become a supplier. Huh. Um, and part of um and they've actually reduced their domestic usage of natural gas in order to sell for export but they've increased their usage of um like dirtier fuels including uh, like fuel oil which is purchased from russia (laughs) (laughs) So like, you know, and, 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 um, and I feel like, so, so for me, you know, just to, I have a, I don't know if these days is a potential, possibly contrarian perspective on this, but, you know, if we, one, one story that maybe we would have told 10 years ago is, um, you know, globalization is how we're going to achieve, get, get out of, from under climate change like we need all hands on deck we need to find the cheapest sources for all of our you know our clean energy needs we need to make this huge transition and this huge transition is only gonna be possible if we can all work together and maximize the you know the productivity of the global economic system which means you know you you, you build you know one thing in china you build another thing in india you build another thing in yeah. in in uh, mexico right just a kind of standard comparative advantage story yeah. about globalization and then the i think the story the old story anyway used to be and that's a good thing for peace and prosperity because you know china needs us we need china and so therefore right. you know we don't go to war over taiwan and you know and there and and it's good that taiwan makes all the microprocessors because then we don't go you know, no one wants to bomb them because it's like right. key to like our, how everything functions. Right. And it does seem like we're moving away from that. And, and energy in an environment is kind of a leading example right. where it's not, you know, there's other things like, like the chip stuff and the, you know, the kind of reshoring more generally of different kinds of technology, but um, the IRA as kind of a core um, example of industrial policy is all about this, right? Where the yeah. subsidies are limited for, you know, to to stuff that's manufactured in the U.S. and there's all these kinds of efforts to 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 delink, in some sense, um, the clean energy manufacturing process from from the at least big chunks of the global economy. So, right, right. Th- for me, this just strikes me as, as you say, like there's risks associated with that. One is it's going to be more costly. There's just no way around that. And um, which drives up the price of electricity, drives up the price of clean energy, vis-a-vis um, fossil, which is bad. And yeah. then the other one is, you know, this this concern about delinking, um, you know, has a little bit of a, of, a, of a precursor to a trade war kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, and so i just i wonder if as yeah as someone who follows this closely does does this give you worrying you know kind of the shivers a little bit it gives no, me the course, shivers a yeah, little bit of course
1: yeah, yeah. no that, the, the, that egypt example is a great one and and uh, i uh, totally on board with your comments i i think you know um the The short answer is, I don't totally know how I think about all this. I, I'm just sort of trying to absorb the complexities of this. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, it probably will require me to dive more into trade law than I ever wanted to, right? <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, for example, like like forced labor in Xinjiang, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, part of you know, there's partly just the human rights story, which I'm totally on board with trying to trying to stop that from happening, right? There's the symbolic aspect of just politicians in the Beltway needing to talk tough about China and mm-hmm. what is their willingness then to follow it up with actual implementation and all all these types of things. And then there's the how do you then continue to achieve your climate goals in light of the right. economic consequences of that policy? You know, I, I, I suppose right now it's just uh, I I think you have to deal with all of them and you you just try just try to create the best. Balance, Because, you know, there was some debates, you know, particularly among more lefty environmental groups of, you know, some people suggesting, like, maybe we shouldn't be so—we shouldn't link these things to human rights so much because of the importance of the climate issue. And, you know, that kind of debate was happening in D.C. and it feels Mm -hmm. wrong to me, you know, like if— You've identified forced labor. You've got to deal with that, but mm-hmm. you know you also have to avoid you know make sure it's not like a cover for just you know com, you know American companies right. trying to gin up something to, to right. kind of shift business their their way. So uh, yeah, I don't know the answer to these things, but but I think in my work I've just tried to sort of you know for example I and a couple of other people have a, had a piece out in science recently that. You know, roughly speaking, tries to turn down the temperature a little bit about national security and uh, and economic shock concerns, and just to try to identify where the real risks are, mm. and tries to warn people not to like over, not to inflate risks because of the potential damage to to climate action that mm. uh, that could lead to. But you know, all the the entire direction within the Beltway these days is is so anti-China that. Uh, it's natural for us in the academic sphere to worry about kind of a return of McCarthyism and, mm-hmm. and all of the negative things that that can bring, right? There's now a um, the Republicans have set up a China committee uh, that uh, we're waiting to see what what they plan to to do. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're always on the, the, the alert for kind of overreach. But also, you know, also, you know, the, the, there's obviously genuine policy concerns and risks that uh, that. The politicians have to deal
0: with, right? So um, yes, this is all very complicated you know, <laughs> moment that we're in. So so one of the um, you know in another recent recent paper um, um, that, that that you put together on kind of the, yeah. the 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 cooperation and the prospect of cooperation and competition for you know the the, the future prospects of climate change. One yeah. of the um, chunks of that um, maybe and maybe we can kind of end and yeah. end with this conversation is the. Um, this notion that you know the U.S. and, and China are, are going to be in competition with each other for the foreseeable future in many different domains. That, um, in part, you know, as we were kind of talking about, there are these alternative models of the world, maybe more similar to each other or more mirror imagey than than either side might realize, but nevertheless, alternatives uh, models, and that. You know, maybe uh, optimistically, there could be competition between these two models on things that are like socially beneficial, like addressing climate change, like, you know, restructuring the economy in a more, uh, you know, you know, decarbonizing the economy. So I guess almost as a proxy battle, right? Like, so, you know, it's like the Olympics or the moon race during the cold war, but now we're going to race to decarbonize. I mean, that would really be wonderful. Um, I guess the question is, you know, what happens to that um, it's a lot cheaper to send someone to the moon than it is to decarbonize the economy, yeah. right? So so what happens, and this goes, relates to the goals stuff, like where everyone yeah. says, okay, we're going to decarbonize by 2050, just give us 10 years and then we'll start, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. like, you know, what happens when the rubber hits the road and it really starts to get expensive? Do you think that the... Um, you know, that this competitive kind of proxy battle over, uh, over systems of governance is enough to, to, to fuel a really serious decarbonization or, you know, are we going to look back and say, you know, we, we got to look to start building a cooperative model after all because ultimately we need a market or, you know, we need something else to, to, yeah. to fuel this thing.
1: Yeah. So uh, yeah. So that's a that's a tough question, and I'm a terrible futurist, but I can <laughs> I can think about you know you know I guess you know the what that piece that you're talking about I was reacting to was you know the the media framing was often especially when Biden came I started writing that when when um, Biden came in. And the media was all talking about, oh, now we can return to cooperation. Everything's going to be okay. And if we don't get cooperation, then the world is going to collapse. Like roughly speaking, right? That was the framing, at least Mm -hmm. of the, or the the underlying premise of a lot of the writing. And so, so this was partly, you know, I and a number of people have, have thought about the competition framing and the implications of that. And and just to say, look, look, are we overplaying the role of of certainly Beijing to D.C. cooperation Mm -hmm. um, because there's so much else going on. And um, also the problems are really so much broader now, as we've been discussing. They're now trade and human rights, things that like John Kerry doesn't have power to Mm -hmm. really dictate. Right. And, you know, and so. So it, in in large part that was the uh, impetus for that, and you still see this kind of framing often in the the media reporting. And you know I don't blame journalists; they're writing on tight deadlines. They don't have the time to recreate a new you know create a new framework for each right. article. But um, but I think that needs to be a corrective to the way that we discuss this. And and we're also seeing you know on the competition front, like of course competition can can matter, right? Like in the sense that if you think of China and the U.S. as having like a business-to-business kind of competition, mm-hmm. you know, that's the natural way we think of markets and, and business, right? And, and we believe that that can lead to faster development of, of things. And, you know, arguably, the Inflation Reduction Act is in part, you know, there's a China component of that, right? And I think Biden has um, has said as much in speeches that, you know, part of the story is trying to outcompete China. And, and um, you know, would the IRA have gotten... Uh, through uh, you know, hmm. without this China element, uh, you know, may, maybe so. I, you know, I, I have no idea. But you know, the China politics and the sense that we need to uh, outcompete China, which is dominating, and and the, that the China dominance in these important industries will lead to their political power that will create security risk for us. That's in the backdrop of all of this stuff in a way that, you know, if it leads to more our our political willingness to invest more money in these types of things Mm -hmm. that that seems like a good good thing right and and arguably we're seeing it at work now right that that dynamic is contributing to to movement uh in a way that um you know and and you know more broadly speaking does it somewhat start to shift our notion of what the role of government should be right like we've Mm Uh, you know, but like we, we've been in several decades, right, like 90s and the 2000s of the role or, or and even longer of, you know, the, everything the government does is bad. Right. And mm-hmm. so now to what extent do we need government to step in and help us to outcompete when your your geopolitical rival uses so much of its government resources to enable and support its own industries. Right. And and so. You know, a lot of the trade stuff has been about complaining about those practices and trying to stop those practices. IRA, in part, is an embrace of those practices of right. our own,
0: right? If you can't and beat them, so, join them, kind of thing. Exactly.
1: So, so, uh, so that competition, you, you know, is, and, and we're also seeing that competition play out in the, um, kind of foreign affairs context. You know, China is certainly. Uh, constructing part of its Belt and Road Initiative outbound investment policies in in green framings. So that Mm -hmm. involves you know, energy investments and rare earths mining, you know, rare minerals mining. And, and the U.S. framing right now is an exact mirror opposite of China's Belt and Road framing, which mm. is green, health and digital. But the U.S. framing has added a, you know, a democratic governance component mm-hmm. as a fourth mm-hmm. component. And so there's clearly a, a competition there to see who can do that better, um, and, and again i think that that'll be a really interesting area to just see how it plays out and it's going to play out differently in every single country you know, depending right. on the 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 dynamics within a given country
0: yeah and it might ultimately i mean one one very optimistic read of this would be that the competition between the us and china will be really good for the global south as the as as this these kind of big economic players kind of compete for influence and and so on and that puts them right. in a better position to negotiate
1: Right, exactly. There, yeah, there, people are in who research this are talking about the hedging strategies of mm. of the global south, and and so you know obviously it doesn't necessarily play to their advantage. It could just be two hegemons kind of right. fighting proxy battles and wrecking you know the battlefield mm-hmm. in which they're playing. But you know again, we it's interesting to think about how it could play. Uh, uh, you know, shift from a period where you know, let's say Americans, I think uh are you know arguably we're neglecting a lot of these countries and now mm-hmm. they're paying more attention because china's trying to get in there and and so uh, so we'll see how that plays out
0: yeah well very interesting stuff i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today it's been a super super interesting um conversation and yeah thanks for all, all your the work you do to uh the, to stay abreast and analyze these incredibly uh complex and important issues Absolutely. And thanks for your
1: podcast. It's such a broad ranging set of topics. It's not just I I thought it was going to be more of a squarely environmental, but you you range uh, across so many topics. It shows your uh, your breadth and, and depth as well.
0: Yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.